Father, you are um, pleased when men get together. You like men, you invented men. You like men to be masculine, and you like women to be feminine. You made us both in your image, but you made us different. And you have put a leadership responsibility upon men. A lot of men run from it. A lot of men are confused by it simply because it was never modeled for them. When we are full of ourselves, we can't be good leaders. That's why we get together to hear from you, the one who invented men, the one who invented masculinity. It's very easy in this culture as we go about our daily affairs and our daily responsibilities to lose our bearings. It's very, very easy in this culture to get off course. We don't want to do that. We want to be on course. So therefore, we have got to be connected with you. And being here tonight is not enough. Showing up and sitting in a seat will not cut it. There must be a teachable heart and a teachable spirit. We can all... be civil towards one another and be gracious and kind and polite and all that stuff. That's external stuff. We can't see into one another's hearts. But boy, can you ever see into our hearts. You know what's there. You know what's going on. You know all the issues. And you know whether or not we bring to you tonight a teachable heart. If we don't, quite frankly, we're wasting our time. This is an exercise in futility, as is all of our life, if we are not teachable. So before we even begin tonight, we would ask that you would break down barriers in each of our hearts. Uh, they're in every man's heart. They're in my heart. And sometimes we don't even know they're there. We have these things, Lord, called blind spots. We never see them. Others around us who are close to us, they see them. We don't see them. We may perhaps have even had people care about us, try to point them out to us, and we have vehemently denied they're there. Well, if they're there, would you show them to us? Would you help us? Would you um, put your spotlight on those things so that we can see them and deal with them accordingly? And then we can grow in that area. But if we're in the dark, we're not going to handle it. We're not going to deal with it. We're not going to bring it to you. So we ask your spirit tonight 
not only to teach us, but to probe us where we need to be probed. Uh, you may need to make us uncomfortable tonight in some areas. That usually happens in the growth process. Growth is never easy. Growth is always hard. Maturity is never easy. It's, uh, it's always hard. That's why we choose many times to take the path of least resistance. But you often put us in the path of the most resistance. So we will be forced to grow and mature and become the men that you want us to be. a merciful God you are, what a forgiving God you are. Lord, if you should count iniquities, it'd be all over for all of us. But you do not deal with us according to our sins. What a remarkable God you are. Because of your justice and your holiness, our sin had to be handled judicially and legally, and therefore Jesus came and took the penalty for us, and he died in our place. And the judicial wrath of your holiness, which should have been poured out on us, was rather poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we fathom that a little bit, but not in the way that we should. All we can simply say is amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So with grateful hearts, we come tonight. Some guys in here are, are, are deeply wounded and, and, and seriously in pain. You are near to the brokenhearted, you save those who are crushed in spirit. Save those men. Encourage them. Let them know that you're with them and you're mindful of them every moment of their existence. We are utterly and totally dependent on you, our Father, for everything. And there are times when we don't quite believe that, and when we don't believe that, we are fools. Everything we have comes from you. So with grateful hearts and expectant hearts, we ask your spirit to teach us through your word. We ask that this time would not be a waste, it would not be in vain. And we would pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell you, it's more and more of a challenge to get up off your knees, isn't it? <laughs> the ushers have these uh, MSM capsules, and we're going to be passing them out. You don't know what that is. You will one day. Well, years ago, I took a journalism class. I'm not sure they teach journalism anymore, but they used to teach journalism, and it was the only journalism class I ever took. I was a communications major, and 
it was one of the electives, so I chose journalism. And one of the things that I learned when I was in that journalism class, and they kept drilling into us over and over and over again, were the six interrogatives. If you're a journalist, an interrogative, they, they couldn't use a word everybody understands. They had to use a big word because it was college. Uh, the, an interrogative is a question. So when you're a journalist, there are six key questions that you should be asking. And, and you know what they are. You didn't even have to take the class. I bet you can recite them. The first question uh, that they teach you in journalism to ask is, who? The second question is, what? You may not get the order exactly right, and if you don't, you're going to have to leave. <laughs> We're really tight here tonight. Uh, the, the six interrogatives are, who? And then the question would be, who, who was involved? So there's a story, or there's something that's happening, you know. You get out on the scene as a young reporter, you need to find out who. Secondly, you need to find out what. What makes this a story? Three, when? When did this take place? Four, uh, where? Where did it take place? You say, this is very basic stuff. Yes, it is very basic stuff. Five, why? Why? Why did it happen? And then six, this breaks the W's and we get an H. How? 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 So those, those are your questions. Those are your six interrogatives. Who, what, when, where, why, how. Now, we are in the book of Daniel, and we're in chapter 1. And if you'll turn over there with me, we're going to look tonight at verses uh, 1 through 7. Last, night we, last week we got our, our start into the first couple of verses. But let's read the text, and then we're going to kind of helicopter the text by uh, asking these questions about the text, and then we're going to draw some conclusions. In the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now, that doesn't mean much to you and me, but if, but if the text said this, in the third year of the first term of Ronald Reagan, would that make sense to you? Yeah, because you'd have a reference point. Or in the second year of the second term of Clinton, you'd have a reference point. That's all they're doing. We have presidents, they have kings. This doesn't mean a lot to us, now, if you have your sheet from last week, it'll make sense to you. If you don't have a sheet, you raise your hand. We've got some guys with sheets that'll get them to you, okay? Um, what we have here is an overview of Old Testament history on one side, and then on the other side, we have a, a breakdown of the uh, kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. You guys keep your hands up and they'll, they'll get them to you. I'm going to keep going here. In the third year, I think there's one on the table underneath there, Jim, if you need one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. All right, king of Judah, what's that about? Well, the nation of, the, the nation of Israel and Judah, the nation we know as Israel, split. When you had the first king, Saul, then you had David, then you had Solomon. When Solomon died, his son became king. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. His son was one of the most foolish men who ever lived. And because of his foolishness, in 72 hours, he split the nation of Israel 
it took his father and his grandfather 80 years to build it. And in 72 hours, he split it. What a tragedy. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Judah was the southern kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, here's another guy we don't talk about a lot, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if we said in the third year of the reign of, um, uh, you know, Obama, uh, Chavez of Venezuela, you, well, okay, that's familiar to us because we know who those guys are. See, they knew who these guys were. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, that's a big nation to the east. Babylon was the big powerhouse nation that everybody was afraid of. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Oh, that's interesting. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So the nation of Judah and the king of Judah were given into the hand of a pagan king along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, this false God. So, Israel, so Judah, who served the one true God, they are now brought, there were going to be three deportations of the people of Judah. It was incremental. The first one was in 605. So this first wave where he takes, as we'll see, some of the choice young men, and he takes them into Judah, what happens here is that this, this land that knew the one true God and had a temple built to the one true God now have become subservient and now their choice young men are being taken off into this foreign land where they are going to be under the domain of a foreign pagan king who serves a false pagan God. It would be like Red China coming in here and invading us and taking our choice young men from West Point and the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy and taking them to Red China. That's what happened. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel. This is the king of Babylon now. The, these choice young men are over there in this foreign land, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. They had a perfect score in the SAT, just like you did. Endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, who were the Babylons. So now they're going to get a new indoctrination. This, this is a huge shift. It's a huge change. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now watch this. They're in a foreign nation, foreign king, foreign god. A lot of change is going on in their lives, is it not? Can you imagine the upheaval? I mean, you just think about, you just thinking about moving from Frisco to Denton. A lot of change when you move. But you think about moving from one culture to another? From serving the one true God to a false God? Now they're going to change their names. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, well, he became Shadrach. To Mishael, 
he became Meshach, and to Azariah, he became Abednego. Remarkable story. Now, let's break this thing down. Uh, why are we studying Daniel? I think Daniel has great relevance to where we are as a nation. But let's not forget our interrogatives. Let's ask, number one, the first interrogative, who? Who are we talking about here? We're talking about Daniel and his buddies. Now, we, his three buddies, we commonly know not by their um, Jewish names, but by their Babylonian names. We know Daniel. We don't usually call him Belteshazzar, but that was his name. And then we know his buddies as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, that's who, and who were these guys? They were young men. They were, we know from uh, what we saw in verse 3, they were some of the sons of Israel. In some way, shape, or form, they were part of the royal family and of the nobles. They, they were part of the elite class. These were, these were choice young men. They were smart. They, were, uh, they had many gifts. They were skilled. They were the cream of the crop. They came in, this, this great ruler comes in, and as his custom, when he comes in and overtakes a nation, he says, we're the best of the young men, and he grabs them, and he takes them back, and now they're his, and they're going to undergo what I would call an indoctrination process for three years. So that's who. So, so what's going on here? Well, the what, the what is, is, is very simple. The nation of Judah, God's people, are being taken into um, captivity. If you look at your chart that we had from last week and again this week, you'll see this overview of Old Testament history, because sometimes the Old Testament can get a little confusing to us. I mean, gosh, the history of the United States can get confusing. You know, uh, it's too bad that when it comes to history that we don't seem to teach history in sequence. Wouldn't it be nice if you had a, a sequential understanding of world history? Uh, sure it would. Most of us, you know, we, we're missing gaps of history. And then you come to the Old Testament, it's really kind of confusing. But if you look on the second tier of the overview of Old Testament history, we, we kind of get our, our, our wheels under us when we see Saul, the first king, then David, then Solomon. Then you see the kingdom divided. And when the kingdom was divided... See, the, the, the ten tribes in the north, they rebelled against Solomon's son. So now you've got a new nation in the north, and that's where you'd flip the page over. The new nation in the north is going to be called Israel, and their king is a guy named Jeroboam. I don't want to spend too much time on this. Interestingly enough, the king they rebelled against was a guy by the name of Rehoboam. That's Solomon's son. Now, the, the tribes in the north, and there are ten tribes in the north, this guy, Jeroboam, did not have a heart for God. He set up idol worship in the north. And every one of those kings that is listed in the northern kingdoms, they followed Jeroboam's lead, and they followed Jeroboam's example. Not one of those kings was a godly king. Not one of those kings in the north for 200 and some years. How many years have we got there? 209 years. Not one of those kings in the north was a godly king who led the people in worship to God. They knew the truth, but they didn't acknowledge the truth. As a result, God kept sending them prophets, prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Hosea and Jonah and Amos, 
And they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen to the word of God. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. So finally, what happens, and you see suddenly they come to an end there, the ninth dynasty. Well, what happened to them? This great nation, Assyria, another nation. They came and took them into captivity, so now they disappear. But as they're taken into captivity, then you got the parallel kingdom, Judah. Every once in a while, Judah would have a good king. Most of the kings were lousy, didn't follow God, didn't listen to the prophets. Every once in a while, you'd have a good king, and he would turn his heart to the Lord, and God would bless the nation and bless the people because they had a godly leader. Nations are blessed when they have godly leaders. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. John Calvin used to say, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. That's the story of Israel and Judah. Now, you work your way down, and uh, you see that Judah lasted longer than the other uh, northern kingdom. Why did they last longer? Because they would have good kings every once in a while, and because of the good kings, the blessing and favor of God would be poured on the people. And instead of uh, God judging them, he would forgive them. And the favor and grace of God was extended. But it reached a point. The last good king was a guy named Josiah. He is one, two, three, four, five from the bottom. Josiah was the greatest of all of the kings. He was the godliest of all the kings. <clears throat> but when Josiah died, it went down fast. Now watch this. Daniel and his friends were probably born during the reign and rule of Josiah. Okay? So they were born during the reign of the godliest king. But then things began to fall apart very, very quickly. And you see Jehoiakim there? Well, under Jehoiakim, that's where the king of Babylon comes in and everything changes and the nation is now going to go into captivity. They're going to be in captivity for 70 years. For 70 years. Let's talk about uh, when this took place. Well, we've already talked about that, actually. It took place in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And you can just figure it out right there on the chart. Uh, where did it take place? They came into Jerusalem, the capital city, and he besieged it. You can visit Jerusalem today. That's exactly, he came up that, that mount, he came up that hill from Jericho and came right up there and besieged that city. Takes the choice, the, the, the choice young men, takes some of the instruments out of the, out, of the, uh, out of the temple, out of Solomon's temple, and he takes them back to Babylon. Now here's the key question, why? Why did this happen? Why? Well, it's pretty simple. They refused to obey God. Flip over with me to Deuteronomy 28. Uh, and on your way to Deuteronomy 28, yeah, let's go to Deuteronomy 28. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28 is a very interesting passage of Scripture. I mentioned it last week. I'll mention it again. Because it explains about this captivity. Uh, in Deuteronomy 28, after giving the people the word of God and the truth of God and the promises of God. God made a covenant with Abraham, who was the first Jew. Uh, the nation of Israel are descendants of Abraham. Uh, we always hear about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a covenant, and God promised to bless him. In Deuteronomy 28, um, look at 27, actually. Uh, Deuteronomy 27. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged 
charge the people saying, keep all the commandments which I command you today. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord gives you. Well, that was part of the covenant. God was going to bless them with this land, and they're still fighting over the land today. Uh, and then he gives them instructions that they're to write the words of the law. Okay, now look at 28. Now it shall be, what you have in 28 are the blessings. And God says, here's the deal. You go into this land. Now, if you follow me and if you obey me, what I'm going to do is bless you beyond your wildest dreams. I'm going to bless you beyond your comprehension. Um, you can't even imagine how I'll bless you if you follow me. The theme of the Old Testament is, I will be your God and you will be my people. You are a people reserved unto me. And I want to demonstrate to the whole world through this little tiny insignificant nation my grace and my mercy by demonstrating it to you. But I want you to obey me and follow me. Don't you want your kids to obey you and follow you? Do you want your kids to fight you and break curfew and take drugs? No, when that happens, they, and why don't you want your kids to do that? Because they screw up their lives, that's why. You're a good father. Good fathers grieve over their kids. Good fathers stay up late at night when their kids aren't home. Good, good fathers track their kids down with GPS and implant it in their daughter's fingers. <laughs> a little extreme there. But, but you care about your kids. Why? You've been through life. You know what's out there. You know that you can get in trouble and make wrong choices and that there are consequences to wrong choices. Well, God is a great father. He says, hey, I want you to listen to me. I want you to live the way I tell you to live. And so what you got in Deuteronomy 28 are all these blessings from God. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. Have you ever been overtaken? Have you ever played football and get overtaken? You could hear those footsteps behind you because you just weren't fast enough. Usually when somebody's overtaking you, it's not good. But see, God says, I'm going to overtake you. I'm going to pursue you because I'm going to bless you. See, here's the thing we, we think as young men. We think, oh, if I go God's way and all that, you know, I'm going to miss out in life and I'm going to have, you know, nothing good's going to happen to me. That's stupid. You follow God, it's the best, it's the best life in the world. It's like, oh, I want to party, man. You want to party? Yeah, I, I don't want to miss out. Oh, you want to party? Oh, my friends are having a party tonight. Oh, okay, well, we're going to, oh, come on, we're going to, we got a keg of beer and we're going to get drunk and we're going to get wasted and then we're going to vomit and then we're going to sleep in our vomit. Oh, yeah, that's great. That sounds good. And you do that consistently and you meet women who are cheap and, you know, and you have sex with them and then they've had sex with a thousand other guys and every time you have sex with them, you have sex with everybody else and for long you get venereal diseases. Hey, this is good stuff. That's stupid. Is it not? God says, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beast, the increase of your herd, and the young on your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. What a promise. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to. He will bless you in the land which the Lord God gives you. 
the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, all the way down, verse 10, so all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will be afraid of you. Look at all God does here. Look at uh, the Lord will make you abound in offspring, verse 11, offspring of your body, offspring of your beast, and the produce of your ground, the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand, and you shall lend to many nations. You shall not borrow. Whoa, there's an interesting concept for a nation, and I'll just leave it right there. Verse 13, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. This is unbelievable. Have you ever seen such a deal? Have you ever seen such an offer? Now, go to verse 15. Here are the curses. By the way, the curses are twice as long as the blessings. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Okay? Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. You ever wonder why the inner city has so many difficulties and problems, and we're trying to fix the problems in the city? We'll never fix the problems in the city. Never. Because they can't be fixed apart from spiritual renewal and revival and changed hearts. Education won't fix it. It can't fix it. Some of the most educated people in our world are despicable in their hearts and in their character. And they're killers of children. Just read through the curses. Just read them. Cursed shall be your basket, your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body. 19, cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you come out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, rebuke, and all that you undertake to do until you are all destroyed, until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Oh, this sounds really good. This, this, is, a, this is alarming, is it not? And God just told him up front, here's the deal. Uh, 23, the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies, and you will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. You see the reverse? Now, I'm not going to go through this anymore. But we're asking the question back here with Daniel and all this stuff and Daniel chapter 1. We're asking, uh, we're asking why. Why did this happen? Why were they taken into captivity? This is why. They refused, they refused, they refused, they refused to follow the truth of the one true living God who they knew to be their God. They refused to follow truth. They refused to bend the knee and bow the knee and submit to him as God. They refused. This never had to happen. Except for the hardness of their hearts and the obstinacy of their will. I always have guys talking to me as well. Uh, um, about free will. Oh, you know, free will. Can I tell you where free will will get you? It'll get you into the curses. Do you know why? You say, well, wait, now, wait a minute, Steve. I got, I got free will. Yeah, but the problem is your will is, see, when we think free will, are, are you a responsible moral agent for your choices? Yes. Yes, you are. 
Absolutely you are, and so am I. We are responsible for our choices. Now the problem, though, with the term free will is that it implies that your will is not under any kind of influence. And the problem with that is the heart is desperately sick and wicked. The problem is, if left to our own devices, we're always going to go against God. Flip over to Psalm 14 real quick. This is why we need a Savior. This is why we need Christ. Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Harvard is full of them. Yale is full of them. By the way, Harvard, Yale, Christian institutions. Funded to this day by the money of evangelical Christian believers. You can go down to SMU. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's the university campus. They're fools. I'm feeling better now. <laughs> the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But it's just not guys in the university campus. Look at this. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. Now watch this. There is no one who does good. Oh, but I believe everybody's basically good. Well, guess what? You're wrong. Oh, but I think we can all get along. We won't get along. No, I mean, that's just, that's nonsense. Well, if we could just get the nations united. Well, that ought to be on the Cartoon Channel. <laughs> so what does God do? God tells us the truth. There is no one who does good. Did you catch that? There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. That's you and that's me. And it's the rest to the world. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's the problem with free will. Your free will will follow sin every time. So we need a savior to save us from ourselves and to save us from sin. Right? That's right. That's theology. So why did this happen, this whole deportation into Babylon, they're going to be 70 years? Because they refuse to acknowledge God. Um... Now, here we get to how. So, so how did this happen? Go back to Daniel 1. I want to show you how it happened. And man, i got to watch my time. I have got to hustle here. Um, <coughs> Daniel, Daniel 1. That's where I'm going. I, wa I want to show you something here. Uh, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem to siege it. We're asking the question, how did this happen? Now, watch this. Watch this phrase. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar didn't come and just say, oh, I think I'll go take this nation, I think I'll go capture it, I think I'll just go. No, he came and he besieged him. But you want to know how it really happened? The Lord gave Jehoiakim and the nation. He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. What God did was, how did this all came up? God just simply gave them over. He gave them over. That kind of reminds me of another passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 1. Why don't you flip over there with me? So 
So Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And I don't have time to really break this down. I'm just going to read it, okay? For the wrath of God is, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Psalm 14, that's everybody. Watch this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Men who what? Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Well, what, the, what does that mean? What do you mean suppress the truth? Well, Judah suppressed the truth. Israel suppressed the truth. They knew the truth about God. God told them, this is who I am. This is my covenant. But they suppressed the truth. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to do it. They didn't want to obey it. You see. This, hey, and you know, we can talk about nations and these guys and all this. But see, the question is, what about me? What about me? Um, it, it says, uh, there are men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The idea is there is to put truth in a box and sit on it. When you suppress the truth, you get it locked down in a box and you sit on it so it can't get out. But the problem with truth is, as you're sitting on the box, you keep going like this. Because truth is, truth is so strong, it, it keeps coming out, you see. And I'm going to fall off this sucker because it's not white enough that I'm standing on. But that's the problem. See, they, the, the truth is so clear you can't miss it, so they suppress it. They, they don't want to acknowledge it. If you saw the Ben Stein movie, Expelled, if you saw that, just where he interviews the atheist and the guys that are um, Richard Dawkins, you know, the guys that say, you know, evolution and all this, and then you're the atheist, and they're very, you, you know, uh, they're very aggressive these days. And so he's interviewing this guy, this, this brilliant giant brain, Richard Dawkins. He's the man. He's the atheist of atheists. You know, Oxford, Cambridge, all this stuff. You know, the world's brilliant man, most millionaire. And so he's saying, well, if there's no God, then how did all this begin? And he had to acknowledge, yes, he's just interviewing the guy. The camera's rolling. They're just talking. Well, and he acknowledges that there's some design and there seems to be some apparent engineering to all this. And he says, well, and Stein says, well, then, well, then we're... And he acknowledges that, yes, indeed, there must have been someone who started it. And Stein goes, really? And I'm kind of paraphrasing. I don't have the exact words, but I'm giving you the gist of it. And Stein says, really? And he goes, yeah. So what do you think made this all happen? He said, well, extraterrestrials came. <laughs> and that's what he said. You're, you're telling me Star Wars, man? See, he just couldn't bring himself to acknowledge God. Because if he's God, then you're under his authority. And you need to bow. And you obey. And if not, you render an account. And you can't live any way you want. And there will be a judgment. They can't handle that. Suppress the truth and righteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. Every person who's ever existed on the face of the earth, you guys, they know that God exists. Why? He made it evident. He wrote the truth of himself on their hearts. Little children are not atheists. They've got to be hardened. Little children know there is a God. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attribute. So I'm out walking my dogs last night. I come around the corner. It's about 7 o'clock, and I just stop 
because I come around that tree line and I just stop because there's those clouds coming in, there's the sun coming down, and boom! Oh, and there's that crescent moon up there, and I just stopped. And I looked at that, and I remembered some great man who said, if a sunset occurred every 50 years, the whole world would stop and worship. But it happens every night, except when it rains. I came around that corner, and I had my two retrievers, and I just happened to look up, and I went, whoa. And I just, I just stopped, and I just looked at the colors. At the Here's what came into my mind. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. That was preaching. That was preaching. Although Psalm 19 says, their voice is not heard, but their utterance has gone throughout the earth. See? This is, this is what 20 is saying. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. You see God in nature. He's everywhere. You see his handiwork. You see his fingerprints. Uh, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. How do you see what's invisible? By looking at creation. The nature channel. The nature channel ought to put you on your face before Almighty God. But we wallow in the vomit of Darwinism. Watch this. Being understood through what has been made. I thought we'd go light tonight, guys. Just, you know, we're just getting into this this, this semester. Being understood through what has been made, watch this, so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse. They know God's there. They know he's there. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So they knew him. They knew him as God. This is what Judah did. This is what Israel did. They knew God. They didn't honor him as God. They didn't give thanks to God. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. If you want to continue in stupidity, God will allow you to become more and more stupid. If you want to wallow in darkness, he'll give you more darkness. Professing, I love 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. And exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So you can look at the great civilizations and how they worshipped idols. We have federal judges who worship smelt. And snail darters. And you know what they're doing? They're just bowing. They're just bowing to the creatures rather than acknowledging the creator. Can I say that here? What I just said? Good. There's still free speech in America, is there not? Oh, today there is. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Um, now, watch what happens. you got a downward spiral going here, guys. And this is what happened in Judah, and this is what happened in Israel. Therefore, God gave them over. Oh, that's interesting. God gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. See, if you want to keep denying God and the truth of God and that he exists and that he has authority of your life, if you want to keep going that way, you want to keep in rebellion, you want to keep denying, well, he'll just, you know the worst thing that ever happened is for, let, is for God to let you go the way you want to go. 
For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And now I was going to talk about lesbianism. When a nation starts celebrating lesbianism and homosexuality, that's bad. And that's us. We celebrate it. We exalt it. Homosexuality is a choice. Heterosexual adultery is a choice. It's a choice. Sin is a choice. John Owen said, you can either be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's a choice. We, we all have different temptations. We all have different things that draw us in it. But you know what? Sin is a choice. It's a choice. We're responsible. Okay? 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, here we go. God gave them over. Once again, he gives them over to a depraved mind. To do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, why am I going into all this? Well, because we're in trouble as a nation. That's why. The reason I think we ought to study Daniel is that I think we have some things coming our way that Daniel had come in his way, and we ought to be preparing. Now, that may be a little shocking, and maybe that's not what you wanted to come out and hear tonight. Um, but the men of Issachar, First uh, Chronicles 12.32, were men who understood the times. We need to understand our times. And if, again, you read your Bible from the lens of Scripture, I, 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 you know, you're, you're there, you see it. Um, John Adams, he was a guy that, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, he had a cousin that had a brewery. Maybe you know of him. <laughs> he, he catered the uh, party level at the Cowboy Stadium. John Adams said this, October 11th, 1798. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. In other words, what he's saying is, um, for our government to work, there has to be the bridle of morality and religion to hold back people's passions. Okay? Avarice, that's unchecked greed. Ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Watch this. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. See, when there's a breakdown in a nation, like a Romans 1, this is what happened in Judah. When there's a breakdown internally, morally, Spiritually, you deny God, then you begin this downward spiral in behavior and morality, and although it's bad, you say it's good, and you encourage others to do so. I was talking with a friend of mine today who has a teenage son, and he's got a teenage son whose Christian friends are telling him that he's probably gay because he enjoys cooking, and he enjoys uh, drawing, 
Now, is the kid attracted to other boys? No. He likes girls. But he likes to cook, and he likes to draw. Oh, you must be gay. Christian kids are telling him this. Okay, I can't do any more of that. Um, a lot of you know John, uh, not John, that's John. This is Henry, Henry Blackaby. Um, about 10 years ago, about 12 years ago, someone interviewed Henry Blackaby. He wrote the Experiencing God stuff, great stuff. Someone asked him, uh, Mr. Blackaby, what do you see as the future for the United States? And uh, here's his response. He says, if you put the United States up against the scriptures, we're in trouble. I think we're very close to the judgment of God. The problem with America is not the unbelieving world. The problem with America is the people of God. You see, right now, there are just as many divorces in the churches as outside the churches. There are just as many abortions inside the churches as outside the churches. There's only a 1% difference in gambling inside the churches than outside the churches. George Barna did a survey of 152 separate items comparing the lost world and the churches, and he said there's virtually no difference between the two. Now watch this. Our gospel is canceled by the way we live. I'm never surprised at what the world does. The problem is with the light. The light no longer dispenses the darkness. And all the way through the Bible, the judgment came on a nation when God's people would not return unto him. We talk about the judgment of the nations. Uh, judgment begins with the household of what? You know where judgment begins? Judgment begins with leaders who know the word of God who do not apply the word of God. So I'm out speaking in California 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, this church, Francis Chan, young guy in his 30s, he's got a growing church out there, invited me to come out. So Sunday morning I show up, you know. He gets up to introduce me. And, you know, introduction, they always say, what should I say? And just, you know, the less the better, make something up, whatever. But this guy didn't ask me what he should say. He just got up and he said, well, we're glad to have Steve Farrar with us. And I met Steve at Biola University and when I was speaking there. And uh, I, I read Steve's books and I wanted to have him out. And uh, um, uh, so I thought about this about six months ago. But before I called Steve to invite him, uh, I called his daughter, Rachel, who I knew from Biola University. And I said, Rachel, I'm wondering if I could ask you some questions about your father. And she said, well, sure. And he said, uh, I, I really don't know your dad. I just read his books. But can you tell me what he's like at home? Um, how does he treat your mom? This guy's saying this in front of the guy. I'm just sitting here getting ready to preach. <laughs> I didn't know anything about this. He said, so, Rachel, would you mind? How, how, does he, how does he treat your mom? And how does he treat you and your brothers? Is he, is he hard to live with? Is he, because I'd really like to know, Rach, and the reason I'm asking you this is that I've had so many guys, I've read their books, and then I've, you know, kind of trusted in their example, and I found out later they were living double lives. And that's why I'm just calling. I'm, and I'm sitting over thinking, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, this is great. This is good. This guy's sharp. He ought to be calling. He ought to be calling. He ought to be asking my daughter. He ought to be asking Mary. What's this guy, what's this guy like? 
And, and why should he be asking that? Because as Blackaby says here, how does he put it? How does he put it? Our gospel is canceled by the way we live. So I, I'm aware of a young man that's uh, in, in prison right now for being a drug dealer. It's very sad. He, it's, just, it's just so tragic. And he's addicted to meth. 22, 23. He's got two sisters. They're not doing well at all. It's just a heartbreaking situation. Um, what about their dad? Their, their dad uh, was raised in a Christian home. Um, abandoned the faith, abandoned Christ. Raised them um, in, in the philosophy of Bertrand Russell. Let's see if I can find this. Which is... There's no God, there's no country, there's no family, refusal to serve in war, free love, more play, less work, no punishments, go as you please. It's difficult to imagine any program which if carried out, this bookman says, would not be more utterly ruinous to a country as this philosophy is. That's the philosophy of our age. So their father was raised in a Christian home. Did he teach his kid about God? No, he didn't believe in God. He walked away from God. And you know what's been interesting? These kids have confronted their father and say, why didn't you teach us Christianity? Our lives are ruined. Why didn't you tell us about this God that you were raised with? Now, what's interesting, and I know this family from a distance, the father, the grandfather is still alive. I get emails from the grandfather telling me about his ministry in his latest book, talking about the important role of fathers in the culture. You say, well, something's wrong there. Yeah, you know what was wrong? He was hell on wheels to live with at home. Treated his wife like dirt. But never listened to his kids. They never felt understood. They never felt... Now, did he love them? Sure he loved them. Did they sense it? Did they see Christianity lived out in the home? No, they saw the guy one way on Sundays and another guy at home. He was hell to live with. And none of them want to be around him. And he's still out there talking about, here's how you save America. And he's so blind, he doesn't see it. May God help me. And may God help you. So Lou tells me this week, he got a phone call recently from a gal. She didn't identify herself. And she just said, I wonder if you could just help me. Lou sets up all my stuff, all my conferences. She said, I wonder if you could just help me because... My husband listens to all these Christian leaders and he reads all these Christian books and he's involved in all these small group ministries. And uh, he's just so hard to live with at home. He's so angry. He's so volatile. He's really hard to be around. The kids don't want to be around him. She said, would you let Steve know that? What do you do with that? Say, Steve, you know, we're talking about Daniel and the fall of the nation. Let's get back to that. Well, how do nations fall? Nations are comprised of families. How do families fall? Bad leadership. Folks, it gets so bad. You know, guys, here's what happens. When when a man is living uh, a dual life, when, when, when a man's 
gospel is counseled out by his living, by his anger, by his rage. I'm asking myself three questions to check myself. Here's number one. You see, I don't want to be like this. I don't, I don't want to be one of these guys whose faith cancels out, is canceled out by how I live. Now, driving over here, you know what? Some guy is, I yelled at some guy driving over here. You know why I yelled at him? Because he's a bozo. He's going 20 miles an hour in the fast lane. He can't read, he can't discern the times. He doesn't know what's going on. He's in both, and I got mad at him, I yelled at him. I shouldn't have hit his back bumper. I feel bad about that. <laughs> Am I saying I'm flawless? No, I'm not saying that. And Rachel knows I'm not flawless. And my kids, we're not talking about being flawless. We get angry. But we're talking about, we're talking about dealing with it, handling it. So here are three questions I ask myself. Okay? Number one, what am I like in the dark? When nobody's around, when I'm not up front teaching, and when I'm not at work, when I'm not, what am I like when I'm in the dark, and what is the condition of my heart? Am I angry at God? Am I angry at God, or am I angry at somebody else? Because am I angry at something that happened to me or what somebody did to me years ago, and therefore I'm, I'm really mad at God because ultimately he was behind it because I believe in God's sovereignty and I believe that he's in control of everything. But yet, see, I really can't, I, I, see, I'm not supposed to be angry at God, so what do I do? I have displaced anger, and then I go home, and I throw it all on them. I don't know. But see, i got to ask myself those questions. What, what, am I, what am I like in the dark? Uh, the second question is, what am I like at home? I mean, really, what am I like at home? If, if we were to interview your wife and your kids and your grandkids, what would they say? Not what would you say. Not what does your newsletter say. What would their newsletter say? Hey, when you die and there's a memorial service, is it going to be easy for your kids to get up and talk about you, or is it going to be hard because they're going to have to grapple to say something nice about you? You say, I don't know. Maybe you ought to ask them. Hmm? You man enough to do that? You ever ask your kids? I used to take Rachel out every once in a while, and I'd say, hey, Rach, and she was in school. I'd say, hey, I'd say, hey Rach, tell me, how am I doing? Because I wanted to know. Because I worried about her, because I thought I was okay raising boys, but I didn't know anything about girls. And I get worried that I wasn't connecting with her. I'd say, how am I doing, Rach? And she said, Dad, you're fine. I said, well, okay, that didn't help me, but where, I said, what, am I, what could I improve on? She said, Dad, I don't like it when you yell. So what are you talking about? <laughs> so I, you know what? I started working that I would not raise my voice. I asked God to help me. Help me, Lord, not raise my voice when I get upset. And I broke that about 16 times watching the Cowboys the other night. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. She said, Dad, that would help me. I said, okay, I'm going to work on it, okay? And you be praying for me that I can do that. And I told, I said, you know, I, I get. Sorry. I, I, uh, I said, you know, I worry, Rach, sometimes that maybe you don't feel understood by me. 
because you're a great mystery to me. See, I get the boys, but I got to tell you this feminine thing. See, I, sometimes I don't understand mom and see, but I want to, and I sometimes I understand you, and I don't want to ever have a gap between us. Because Satan can really drive that crazy, can he? See, you just want to connect, guys. Uh, number three, am I bringing my family joy or grief? So, you know, Steve, wait a minute. We're talking about here Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and the fall of the nation. and all. Yeah, we are. It all begins with families. <sighs> okay. <laughs> you, you know, guys, we can come here and study the Bible and get out our concordances and our lexicons and all this and our books and all this. If I'm not actively trying to apply it at home, it is a waste of time. Right? And you too. I got to be a better husband than I was a year ago. I got to be a better father, grandfather, if that's what you are, than you were a year ago. I got to be growing in grace. Right? As the culture's falling apart. We're all agreed. We could, you know, take away. Is the culture falling? Yeah, the culture. We all know culture's falling apart. Okay, all right, it's falling apart. Well, what the heck are you doing about it? What are you doing? What we're going to see is that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were young men who made a difference. They were young men who made a difference. Now, I'm going to end with this, and I don't know how I'm going to shift this, but I'm going to do it. Um, when we talk about the demise of the nation, all that, that stuff's not pleasant to talk about, and it's not fun to think about. But we're all thinking it. We're all kind of kicking it around. Um, where's my book? Remember I told you I was reading this book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs, written in 1648? I'm shifting gears here. This is not a good transition. This is not how they teach you to do it in seminary. But I don't know any other way to do it. I don't have a good transition. So I'm just transitioning. Okay? How do you turn around an 18-wheeler on the tollway, not real easily. That's what I'm doing right here. I don't want to leave this on a negative note, okay? Is the culture, you know, Babylon, they came and got them, Judah fell apart, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this nation falling apart? Yeah, we all know it is, okay. <clears throat> so we, ought to, we all ought to be discouraged and despondent and in despair, right? No. That's not how God wants me to live. He wants me to live with hope. He doesn't want me to lose my joy. I found myself over the summer Finding myself without joy. I found myself frustrated all the time. He doesn't want me to live like that. So I referred to Paul's section in Philippians chapter 4 where Paul says, I have learned the secret. I have learned the mystery of being content in all things. Paul had great loss. Uh, the guys in Daniel had great loss. Lost the country, lost the freedom, lost the liberty. Paul lost everything. A bunch of us have lost stuff in here. So when we, when we have loss in our lives, we get depressed. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. I've learned the mystery. You know what? I want to learn that mystery. I want to give you one shot out of Jeremiah Burroughs to leave this thing on a positive, God-based note. So you can go home tonight and have peace and joy and enjoy the rest of the evening. Okay? You guys with me? Or you need Valium. What do you need? You need some drugs? What do you need to get up? 
let's just take a shot of the Word of God here. From this guy in 1648, I've got a half a page to read to you. Can you handle it? You okay? All right, watch this. Here's what this guy says in 1648. Not a lot happening in England in 1648. You know, not a lot of video games. No ESPN. So these guys had time to think about the Word of God. Here's what he says. He's talking about providence in our lives and the events that happen in our lives, good and bad. And we have good stuff and bad happens. Watch this. We indeed look at things in our lives by pieces. We look at one detail and do not consider the relation that one thing has to another. But God looks at all things at once and sees the relation that one thing has to another. When a child looks at a clock, it first looks at one wheel, then at another wheel. He does not look at them all together or the dependence that one has upon another wheel. But the workman, the craftsman, now he has his eyes on all of the wheels together and sees a dependence of all the wheels one upon another. They're all connected. So it is in God's providence. Now notice how this works to our contentment. When a certain providence befalls me that is not to my liking, and I paraphrase, that is just one wheel in my life. And it may be that if this wheel were stopped, a thousand other wheels might come to be stopped by this as well. In a clock, if you stop but one wheel, you stop every other wheel because they're all dependent one upon another. So when God has ordered a thing for the present to be thus and thus and not what we like, how do you know how many things depend upon this thing? God may have some work to do 20 years later that depends on this passage of providence that falls on this day or this week of your life that you do not like. Did they like it that their nation was taken captive? No. Have you ever had things happen in your life that were a loss to you that you did not like and that you did not understand and you felt like God had left you and God had abandoned you? Have you ever had that happen to you? Yeah, you know what I was thinking about this week? The greatest things that God has done for me in my life have come directly out of the greatest disappointments. There's a direct correlation. I could list them out for you. The greatest blessings come out of the greatest disappointments. So, 30-some years ago, I meet this gal, beautiful gal, Loves Christ. Beautiful character. All this stuff. We're engaged. Break it off for a while because we're not quite ready. We're, you know, you know, we're just, you know, or, or do we move ahead? You know, we're just fine. And, 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 you know, you get in these relationships. And it goes a year. It goes a year and a half. And we start and stop and start and stop. It's two years, two and a half years. And, and there's no question about character or love for Christ or anything. Just a great, great, great gal. But it's like there's an emergency break on. And I'm getting frustrated. I'm thinking, you know, Lord, you know, I, I, I'm, I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to move on with my life. And anyway. So I start fall semester at seminary. I walk in. I have to take this class on Christian marriage. It's an elective. I'm not married. But I got to take the class. I walk in. The professor, Grant Howard, says, before we talk about marriage, we're going to talk about the steps to marriage and the different phases to marriage. And there's dating. Then there's engagement. Probably have between dating and engagement, engaged to be engaged. He said, let's talk about some of the barriers to engagement. He gives us a handout, probably 38 things. And I start looking at this thing, different things that are barriers to marriage. I start looking. I take out my pen. I check that. 
We got that one. We got that one. I'm checking 12 to 15 things. It was like God, and I've been praying for two years, and she had to. Lord, make it clear to us. But it was a great disappointment in my life. It was like this morning, God sent me a FedEx letter, and it was all underlined. That's all I can tell you. It is this and this. We got this problem. So you know what I did? I said, this is unbelievable. No wonder we've had. No wonder we haven't felt right about moving ahead. So I called her. She, we got together that night after dinner. I got a sheet that was clean without my notes. And I said, hey, Dr. Howard handed this out. And I explained it to her. I said, take a look at that. So she's reading it. And she went, huh. She said, oh, that's us. I said, yeah. And that, and that, and that. She pretty much picked out everything I'd picked out. We had about 15 things that really just weren't quite oh, just phenomenal girl. And you know what we decided to do that night? We decided to bring that thing to a close. And you know, a lot of my friends and her, everybody's worried about me. That's a great disappointment. And you know, when you're, you know, you can understand, right? I mean, this girl was classy, great. A, I mean, this top of the line. Um, three weeks, three weeks later, I met my wife Mary in the marriage class, sitting right over there. Oh, and can I tell you something? Within a year, Mary and I were married. It was a great disappointment. Great, you know, you know. Oh, by the way, this gal that I, Mary and I, a year later, we're married. She's married to another guy, a guy I used to play basketball with. Great character. They've been married 32 years. We've been married 32 years. Great disappointment for both of us. Greatest blessing of our lives. Probably that we didn't. You see what I'm saying? And I can give you 10 other illustrations, guys. Does loss happen? Yeah. Is God sovereign? Can you lose a nation? Yeah. Is God still sovereign? Does God still bring blessing? Yeah. So let's not lose our hope. Let's not lose our joy. Let's trust him. Is that positive enough for you? It's positive enough for me. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, your greatness. Encourage us. Help us to go home now and live this stuff. If we need to go home and apologize, may we apologize from our guts. You will bless that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.